So I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in a political season. Yay! That's so fun. So very fun. Uh, let me give you a request from your pastor. Uh, during this season, I want to ask that you represent Jesus very, very well. And not just in how you vote, but also in how you treat people. Okay? So do not sacrifice the testimony of Christ on the altar of your political opinion. That's just not worth it. And, and I'm, I'm going to give you my prophetic prediction. You, you want to know the result of the election? I'll tell you right now. After the election, we will still have a fallen government for a fallen country in a fallen world. There's just no way around it, no matter who gets elected. Now, I'm not suggesting that elections aren't important. It's important. I will vote. I'd encourage you to vote. That's for sure. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, our hope is in God's kingdom, not in a country. And our trust is in our king, not in a candidate. And we've got to camp there. <laughs> By the way, one of the interesting things that happens, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, when there is a change of office, I'm not suggesting there will be at this point, I don't know. But I notice it when, uh, when Trump came in. Whenever there's a change of office, the ex-president tries to claim all the credit for the good stuff that happens during the next administration all while trying to avoid the blame for all the bad stuff happening at the same time. Have you noticed this? Obama did it. It's not an Obama bashing thing. Like, eventually Trump tr will leave office, whether now or in four years. I don't care about your opinion on that. But he'll leave. And when he leaves, he'll do the same exact thing. Everyone does it. Now, to be fair, one test of a good leader is what happens after he leaves. And this is true for pastors as well. So, for, for example, uh, when I, if I were to leave the pastorate here, and if Redemption Chapel tanks in six months, that's on me. That means it wasn't healthy before I left, okay? That is my influence right there. Now, a couple years down the road, that's, that's a different, different thing. But if I leave Redemption Chapel, you got to know, I'm going to be praying for it. I, I'm going to be like with bated breath watching it, hoping that people are knowing Jesus Christ personally, growing in the relationship with him, going to advance his kingdom. Worship and good teaching, it just doesn't miss a beat. If it tanks within six months, that's on me. Now, <laughs> don't worry. I, I'm not going anywhere. You're not that lucky. <laughs> you're, you're not getting rid of me? Uh, I'm like, uh, uh, no, I won't go there. Okay, so, but what's the point? The point is this. We're talking about First Thessalonians. And what has happened is Pastor Paul has led the church there. He gave birth to the church, but he had to exit early. And they're all young Christians, less than a year old. And the question is, what happens after Paul leaves? And so he's watching with Bated breath, he's concerned, he's on pins and needles, and he sends Timothy up to get a report about the church. And, and this is what Paul knows about them. It's going really, really, really well. He's really excited. Look, we'll get to our passage. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Paul writes this, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you 
Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, you know, we're calling these letters from your dad. And Paul's a total dad. This is a a parent move right now. He's constantly remembering them, praying for them, worried about them, inquiring about them. Then, then, he's totally thrilled. He's proud. He's bragging about them. Like, is Paul just biased? Is he a biased parent toward his kid? Is that what's going on here? You understand, Paul gave birth to lots of churches. He was rarely this affirming. This is the only church that he refers to as an example for other churches. Okay? He, he will give birth to a church in Corinth. And we have letters, First and Second Corinthians. And Paul writes to them. He's basically saying, what the heck's wrong with you people? Did you eat paint chips as a child? Like, what is, like that? And that's par for most churches. Okay? Look at what Reinhold Niebuhr said. He said, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it weren't for the storm outside, we couldn't stand the stink inside. (laughs) Ouch, that hurts, but it's so honest. It's so honest, but evidently not in Thessalonica. The Thessalonian Christians were crushing it, and Paul is so proud of them. And in this passage, what we see is a picture of a very healthy church. They're, They're the real deal. They're not faking it. They are genuine. They're very genuine. And I want to talk to you about a genuine, healthy church this morning and what that looks like according to this passage. We'll go through a few bullets. The first one is this. They experienced genuine conversion. Okay? They didn't just like hear the gospel and then pray some magic prayer. You know, raise your hand, come forward, get baptized, but there's no transformation. That wasn't it for them. Okay, listen, some of you prayed a prayer, and if Jesus came back right now, I wouldn't want to be handcuffed to you. All right? Just settle on it. The Thessalonian Christians, by contrast, they experienced incredible resurrection. They went from death to life. There was genuine conversion in their lives. How did that happen? Well, Paul said in the passage that the word came with power. What's that mean? What that lo- it didn't say. We don't, we don't know exactly what that meant. I do know this. I know there are times when I preach and I can sense the power of God. Like I know he's up to something and it's just profound. There are other times I preach and not so much. And yet even in those times, like somebody will come up to me afterwards. Oh, Pastor Rick, that was amazing. I'm like, seriously, that was a turd. (laughs) What? 
What? But God did something in that moment in their lives. You see, this passage speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 5, it speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the word. In verse 6, it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit in the receiving of the word. And we need to have both. And so what I do, one of my habits, I pray in this room every Friday. Most of our staff are off on Friday. I'm not. Those who are here, if they're here, I kick them out, close the doors, usually turn the lights off. It's just me and God, and I beg him. Every Friday, just move. Just move. Because I know if it's just me, we're in trouble. And I'm saying, Jesus, would you just move? Would you call them? Would you move with power? Would there be the Holy Spirit? Would there be conviction? Those aren't random words. All four of those were in our passage. That's what happened. And it led to genuine conversion. And that's God's work. We can preach the gospel, but only he can bring the fruit. And for them, there was genuine conversion. The second thing that I I notice, a second bullet point here, is that they had a genuine walk with Jesus. Now, (laughs) we have Christian lingo, right? We have Christianese. What's it mean, a walk with Jesus? That's kind of weird, like... Okay, what it means is that step by step, day by day, I'm actively walking with Jesus. I'm interacting with him. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's a real relationship, and it impacts my life. I walk with Jesus. And and Paul teases that out a little bit in verse 3. Get specific about what that looks like. Look at this. It says, Paul was remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the great Reformation theologian John Calvin said of this verse right here, he said, it is a brief description of true Christianity. Okay? It's like, remember, Paul is trying to give them the cliff notes because these are young Christians and he wants to sum it up. So he's like, let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Okay, right? Okay. So that's what he's doing in that verse right there. He's summing it up for them. And what you notice about it is it's not just about faith, love, and hope. Do you see that? It can't just be theoretical. It can't just be some mental ascent. It is a work of faith, a labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope. You see, true faith, genuine faith, works out in true action. This is a walk with Jesus. Notice it is an action that we do. We walk with him. And also notice the flow. That faith leads to works. It's not the reverse. Works doesn't lead to faith. Faith leads to works. And this is a result of genuine conversion. This is the proof. We know that their conversion was genuine because it worked out in their lives. They really believed it and it directed their lives. Somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor, I'm a new man. I've turned over a new leaf. I'm no longer a workaholic. I'm spending family time, wife and kids. I say, really, what have you done differently? Oh, nothing yet. You're not a new man. You haven't turned over a new leaf, right? You get that. This guy, Paul, is being so affirming because they have, the Thessalonian Christians have a genuine 
walk with Jesus. Their faith overflows into works. Their love overflows into labor. And their hope overflows into steadfastness. Now they got there in part by imitating Papa Paul. He says that in there, you became imitators of us. My son Caleb did this quite naturally. When he was just a little guy, he wanted to imitate dad. He wanted to be like dad. And so the first two sports he did was soccer and wrestling. Why? Those are my sports, soccer and wrestling. Now, if you know my son, he's built a little bit more like a lineman. What was he doing playing soccer? He wanted to be like dad, right? I remember another time, it was around the same age, at that season of my life, I was running a college ministry at Kent State. And it was just Caleb and me in our, our truck, and we were driving along. And he turned to me and said, Dad, how's this work? If you die, do I take over the ministry? <laughs> he had watched a lot of shows where the king dies and the child heir takes over, even though he's five, right? He's like, no, buddy, that's not the way it works. Don't worry, man. Don't worry. But he wanted to be like me. He wanted to imitate me. In fact, recently he told me that his personality is a less mature version of me. God help us. Right? Like, I've set the bar low. How could you not clear that, man? You know, like, come on. Oh, my goodness. But he wants to imitate me. Listen, we imitate people. You need a spiritual mentor that you can imitate. Not just one. Ashley Paul said you became imitators of us. You need several mentors. And it might be person to person like life on life. Might be, but not necessarily. It could be from a distance, right? It's very doubtful that Paul, Silas, and Timothy met one-on-one with all the believers in Thessalonica. It just probably didn't happen. Well, what you need are people to nurture your faith in your walk with Jesus. Mature Christians, people with deep, godly character, great walks themselves, and then become imitators of them so that you develop a genuine walk with Jesus. That's what we see going on in the church in Thessalonica. Now, the next bullet point is that we see they had genuine worship. They were forsaking their idols. Now, this might have been their work of faith right here. What's really interesting about this, don't miss this, they didn't try some half step of adopting Jesus into the Greco-Roman pantheon of idols. You understand that's really interesting. They could have, they, maybe culturally they should have. It, it was a pluralistic, a polytheistic culture. It would have been normal and natural just to say, oh, okay, so here's another God. Maybe Jesus joins the pantheon, and so my Zeus-worshiping neighbors, they're right too, and maybe I can worship both Zeus and Jesus. That would not have been genuine conversion. That would not have been genuine worship. Why? That wouldn't have changed anything about them or their lives. Instead, what they did is they turned from their idols and they turned to Jesus. That's genuine worship. Now, we do not tend to worship stone statues today. But that's not to say we don't have idols. We do, and there's lots of them. And what I want you to do today and this week is I want you to discover your idols. So I have a list of words for you right here. Behold your God. What is it that gives you meaning and purpose, that's your ultimate goal, that is, gives you fulfillment. 
What is it? For that thing you sacrifice, you must have it, you focus on it, your energy goes there. You spend your money and your time trying to get that thing. What forms your worldview? That's the filter for how you interpret the whole world around you. What is it you love? And of it, you are in awe and you worship. Behold your God. Part of your homework this week is to spend time with that list and discover what is it because those are God words. What is it for you? If Jesus told you to give that thing up, would you? Ooh, that's clarifying, isn't it? Or maybe we'll go, whoa, 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 but maybe, maybe I can have both Jesus and, right? Maybe I can just adopt Jesus into my pantheon of idols and he can just be one of the guys. And I got to tell you, Jesus has no interest in that. No interest at all. The Thessalonian Christians experienced genuine conversion. It led to genuine worship. They were not playing around. They were not playing games. They were not playing religion. They turned from their idols to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what did that mean for them? Well, look, look back at this list. Where did they get their meaning? Where did they get their purpose? Jesus their ultimate goal was Jesus. Their fulfillment came from Jesus. They would sacrifice for Jesus. They must have Jesus. Their focus, their energy, their time, their money, Jesus. Their worldview, the interpreter of the world for them, Jesus. Their love, their all, their worship, all Jesus. Remember this, this was their work of faith. It came out in their lives. Paul said they had become imitators of us, remember that? And then he said, and of the Lord. See, in their worship, they were imitating Jesus. Eventually, you got to graduate from imitating a, a human mentor to imitating Jesus. Because at the end of the day, your, your mentor, your sponsor, your disciple, or whatever, that's a flawed human being. And Jesus is the only one who's ultimately worthy. We got to imitate him. And the reality is, we imitate stupid stuff, don't we? we? We imitate people's gestures, the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they dress. We imitate vocabulary. Okay, this is a strange thing. The word minute. Let's talk about that for a second. When I was growing up, the word minute meant 60 seconds. I don't know if that's changed on your clock. But, but, so we would use it to mean a short period of time. Hey, I'll be with you in a minute. Which means I'll be with you in just a very short amount of time. Now, how is it used? Man, I haven't been to that restaurant in a minute. <laughs> that means a long time. That's not 60 cents. What was wrong with you people? Everybody's using it. How does it happen that everyone... We imitate stupid stuff. We do. We imitate stupid stuff. What if you were so in awe of Jesus, so in love with Jesus, so worshiping Jesus, that you were saying, I just want to be like him. I want to imitate him. In fact, I would give up anything just to be more like him. That's worship. That's worship right there. And some of you follow Jesus like you follow the speed limit. Kind of. Kind of. And you think about the speed limit, you don't love the speed limit, you don't really want the speed limit, but you're going to stay reasonably close to the speed limit so that you don't get nailed by the authorities. 
And some of you follow Jesus just like that. You don't like him that much. You don't love him. You're not in awe of him. You don't worship him. You wish you could get away from the speed limit that he puts on your life. But you're going to stay reasonably close to Jesus because that way maybe the authority of God the Father won't be so hard on you. That's not worship. These Thessalonian Christians were the real deal. They just wanted, they loved dad. They wanted to be like dad. That was it. It was genuine, genuine worship. Now the next bullet is this. And this one's a lot shorter. But they, they experienced genuine connection. Genuine connection. Paul, throughout these two letters, keeps referring to them as brothers. Okay? Delphoi, it would mean brothers and sisters. We, if we were to write it today, we would probably say it that way. He referred to them as brothers throughout the letters. 28 times in two letters, he calls them that. This is family. And he puts it in plural because he addresses them as a unit, as a family. Throughout the letters, we see that they are involved in each other's lives. This is the labor of love. If you're not connected to your Christian family in some way, you're not quite there yet. This is a labor of love. Listen, if you love the king, you love his kingdom. You love his citizens. And if you don't, don't say you love the king. Or how about this? If you love the dad, you love his kids. Don't come to me and say, Pastor Rick, I really love you, but I hate your kids. We're not okay. Right? Like, Pastor Rick, I really want to hang out with you, but not if your kids come around. Then I'm out. We're not hanging. Okay? You see that? That just makes sense. And the Thessalonian Christians knew that they had the same dad, that they were brothers and sisters, they were family. And so they invested in time and in relationship with one another because Christianity is a team sport. It's not for Lone Rangers. They had genuine connection. It's a great church. Young, but it's a great church. And the next thing we notice about them is that they had genuine joy. Now, it said a steadfastness of hope. That Greek word, steadfastness in the Greek, it's a word that means bearing up under a heavy load. What was the heavy load? Well, there was persecution going on. Paul said, for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you understand, that's how they received the word, during persecution. We tend to think of persecution, we think of coming to Jesus, and we have this time of peace and growth, and it's good, and then down the road, persecution comes, and hopefully we stick. That's not how it happened there. Here's how it went down. There was persecution happening to the Christians, and then other people said, hey, can I be with them? Can you count me as one of them and persecute me too? What? How does that happen? Why do that? Why? Because it's true. And it doesn't matter if there's persecution or not. There's just truth. It's simply true, persecution or not. And thus, it is worthy. And a healthy church does not fold just because it gets tough. This was a genuine good church. And you'll notice they didn't just stick begrudgingly, but they did it with joy. They had genuine joy. One of the interesting things is when you look around the globe and throughout the centuries, the Christians who experience affliction and persecution tend to have more joy than the comfortable Christians. 
And yet we pray to be comfortable Christians all the time. It's weird. You go out on the mission field, and I'll tell you what, you'll find affliction. So what happens is, when a missionary comes home on furlough for a homestay, we say things to them like, wow, I, I don't know how you do it out there. That's so amazing. You know what they say to us? I don't know how you do it here. Because this place sucks my joy. They have genuine, genuine joy in the midst of affliction. See, the Thessalonian Christians are bearing up, but not begrudgingly, but with genuine joy, and that's fantastic, and I want in. How can I get that? Paul says two things in the passage. First, he points to the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's not a throwaway phrase, people. It's the Holy Spirit, all right? So how can you have joy in affliction? You can't. The Holy Spirit can. And he can do it in you and through you. But you, you're a lost cause. The Holy Spirit can absolutely do that. He is God's presence and God's power in your life. It's the Holy Spirit. And then the second thing that Paul points out is that these Thessalonian Christians keep looking for it. They are focused on the second coming of Jesus. Right? So Jesus came the first time, death, resurrection, and, and, and now he's coming back. He'll wrap it all up. And so these Thessalonian Christians, they, they, are, they are so intent on, some of them stopped working because Jesus is coming back. Paul will correct. He's like, time out. That's too far. Right, go back. But, but at least they really believed it and were putting feet to their faith. And so while we work out our faith here, our hope is not here. Our hope is there. And that's what they were doing. And since their hope was there, even though there was affliction here, they could have joy. It controlled their emotions. Oh man, there's this great sentence from William Barclay. Look at this. He said, a man can endure anything as long as he has hope. For then he is walking not to the night, but to the dawn. Isn't that good? It's still dark. But are you walking into the night or into the dawn? And see, they knew Jesus is coming back. They were marching to the dawn. And here's my question for you. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming back seven days from now, how would you live differently this week? That's what the Thessalonian Christians were doing. Even though they were just baby Christians. They were, they were crushing it. And then and lastly, the, the, the thing I saw there is that that led to genuine impact. Now, I'm going to go light on this one because we'll be coming back to it in a few weeks. But it is mentioned here, and it's really important to a good picture of a healthy, genuine, real deal church. See, the Thessalonian Christians, they were not dead ends for the gospel. They were through streets. What they received the gospel, they passed on the gospel. They were a healthy church because healthy things grow, healthy things multiply, healthy things replicate. If every church was like the church in Thessalonica, I suspect that we may have reached the entire world with the gospel by now. Charles Spurgeon, that great British preacher, he put it this way. He said, everybody asked, why? What, what has happened to these Thessalonians? These people have broken their idols. They worship the one God. They trust in Jesus. They are no longer drunken, dishonest, impure, contentious. 
Everybody talked of what had taken place among these converted people. Oh, for conversions, plentiful, clear, singular, and manifest. That so the word of God may sound out. I love this sentence. Our converts are our best advertisements and arguments. That is our redemption stories. And I don't just mean the ones we put on video. I mean all the, all the ones sitting before me right now. They are our best arguments and advertisements when they are genuine. Here's a question. What do people know about Redemption Chapel? That's a church by the airport that looks like a big Chipotle, right? Don't they cause traffic problems on Sunday morning? Are those the people with the, that blue R on the back of all their cars? That's what they know about us. What do you want them to know about us? That's the question. I'll tell you what, I, I want them to know about changed lives. Oh my goodness. I want them to know about healed relationships, about people who are doing a labor of love toward each other and toward the community around us. I want them to know about people who are serious for Jesus. So they're saying, like, maybe it's true. I mean, something is changing those people. Don't let it just be about traffic in Chipotle. Crying out loud. See, the Thessalonian Christians, they were the real deal. They were genuine. And look back at this list, if you will. When you look at that list, I want you to remember, they were all less than a year old in the Lord. This was a young church. Okay, These are not old Christians. They had just come out of idolatry, false religions, messy lives, and yet Paul could write this about them. And if them, then why not us? Don't count yourself out as if you're too new to this Christianity stuff and this is for more mature to say, no, this is for us. Listen, hear my heart. God didn't send Jesus to die so that you could just go to church once a week or even less. He, he sent Jesus to, to die so that he could claim us and that he could transform us. So it's not that you prayed some magical prayer back at VBS when you were a child and now your life looks no different than the non-Christians around you. That's not genuine. That ain't it. Reminds me of bacon and eggs. I love bacon and eggs. I'm kind of hungry right now, I've got to be honest. Bacon and eggs, I could go for some right now. Oh. And maybe you've heard this. You know what the difference is between the chicken and the pig? That the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Right? Think about that. Chicken, chicken lives to see another breakfast another day, Right? The chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. And my fear is that some of you are involved with Christianity, but you are not committed to Christ. And I want you to have the real deal, the genuine thing. And so what are your life goals? What are you looking for out of life? What are you hoping for? What's important to you? I know you have goals. I'm not talking about the Sunday school answer that you will give at your community group. I'm talking about the thing you daydream about and you labor for every day. What are your goals? And my question for you is this. If eternity is true, why not these? Why not these goals? Why not be a Jesus freak? Now, if Christianity is not true, then the Thessalonian Christians 
really gave up like reputation and time and energy and probably money and pain needlessly. But here's the thing. If Christianity is not true, for a lot of Christians, it won't make a difference at all. They're Christian atheists. They claim the the name, but they don't live like it's true. And so what I want you to do is that cliche of putting your money where your mouth is. I'm not looking for money. I'm talking about put your faith, excuse me, put your life where your faith is. That's it. Put your life where your faith is. What if your goal in life was I simply want to make dad proud, our heavenly father. I want to make him proud. I want to be more like him. I love him. It's not just a speed limit. I love him, and I want to be more like him. What if that were your aim? And so you look at this list right now. Here's some homework. One, you've you got to figure out what your idol is. probably have several of them, right? But also, I want you to choose one of those bullets right now where you think you're most lacking. And I want you to commit this week that you're going to work on that bullet. And here's the thing I want you to do. I want you to reach out to some more mature Christian, okay? Somebody who's got deep godly character and you respect their walk with Jesus. And I want you to reach out to them today. If you put it off past the nighttime, you won't do it. Do it today. Reach out to them and tell them which one of these you're going to be growing in this week. And no, you may not contact me. I'm off the table. Leave me alone, right? Because so, that, that's just a little much, right? But uh, it, and it also, it, it's also a problem because it, then we assume that I'm like the only mature Christian. And if that's true, our church is screwed, right? And so, so, but I want you to reach out to somebody in the body of Christ and share with them which area you're going to be growing in this week, all right? And for that, I want to pray. Bow your heads with me. Great God and Father, boldly we approach you right now. By the blood of Jesus, we could come in no other way. And Lord God, I want to pray. I I think this is a great church, and I think I'm surrounded by brothers and sisters I love dearly, and I see genuine marks in their lives, and I want to praise you for that. That's your work. That's your fruit. I love this church. And at the same time, Father God, we do not want to be some cocky, arrogant, prideful church. We also admit that when we read this passage, there's so much we need to grow in. And Lord, we want to be more like them. We want to be genuine. So would you move in our lives? Would you convict and call and and move your Holy Spirit into our lives? That we could become worshipers, like true worshipers of you. That we could become imitators of you. That we could just love you, our dad, and want to be like you. And we cannot wait until Jesus comes back and wraps this thing up. And our hope would be there that we would walk not into the night, but to the dawn. And we look forward to that dawn, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.